listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, Robert Wright, <laughs> publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter on Substack. Uh, this is the Non-Zero Podcast, and you're Susan Shirk, a uh, professor at UC San Diego, I believe where you are chair of a center that studies China, which you also founded. What's the name of the uh, this 21st Century China Center? Is that it? That's right. I'm the founding chair, but I have, I am no longer the chair. I see. You're the founding I'm, chair. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, the chair emeritus. I'm going to call it that. And uh, my colleague, Victor Schur, is now the okay. chair. So you're you're uh, you're 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 a figurehead. You're a ceremonial. Uh, you're, not you're, quite. You're not quite. Not quite. Um, okay. But um, one person joked about it and said the Chinese Communist Party has not solved the peaceful succession problem, but 21st century China Center has. And you, and you're willing to serve as their role model. Should Xi Jinping ask you, you stand ready to guide him. So um, you've got a book out that's pretty new, I think less than a year old, um, called Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, and we want to talk about that. Um, now, is it fair to say that the book is, among other things, your answer to the question of how did we wind up in what seems like a cold war with China, even though 10, even five years ago, it didn't seem so much like a cold war. And for that matter, how did we wind up closer to a hot war with China over Taiwan than it seems like we were uh, five or 10 years ago? Is that a fair way to characterize the book? It is a fair way to characterize it. I I'm an old China hand, and for most of the time I've been studying China, um, after Mao passed from the scene, uh, there was a lot of progress inside China in terms of improvement of people's lives. And China was managing to get along with the United States and its neighbors moderately well by exercising mm -hmm. restraint. But all of that changed, and I observed that. And, um, you know, I think... It'll be a surprise to the readers of the book to discover that that happens even before Xi Jinping comes mm -hmm. into power. Comes, we can talk more about that. But uh, so I was puzzled by the shift inside China and wanted to understand it better and wanted to think about how the U.S. should react to it better. Mm hmm. Yeah, I should have mentioned actually that you served in the State Department during the Clinton administrations, and and uh, so you you also actually have some governmental experience. The uh, so so would you say that your answer to the question I outlined, like how did we get into a Cold War, is that China is more to blame than the U.S.? Well, you know, if you look at the I, you know, I'm reluctant to say that because both sides have contributed to mm -hmm. the downward spiral that we're in right now. But if you look at the sequence of events and the sequence of shifts in policy, I think it definitely is fair to say that China has brought most of these problems on itself. It's kind of encircled itself by virtue of its becoming more aggressive internationally and more repressive domestically. Okay. And so what are, uh, why don't you kind of elaborate on some of that? What are some of the manifestations of overreach of China having kind of gone too far in ways that contributed to the downward spiral of relations? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think it's important to make sure people understand what overreach means. Overreach means to take things too far, to do things in, a, in an extreme way, in a manner that then snaps back to harm yourself. Mm -hmm. So that is very much the argument of the book, is that 
uh, China is harming the interests of its own people by virtue of its policies and actions. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned a, a minute ago, I think the key to its ability to get along with other countries, even as it was growing in power economically and militarily, was that it exercised considerable restraint over its own actions. And it emphasized mm -hmm. uh, creating a peaceful environment around China uh, in order to promote economic development of its own society. But beginning in the uh, after the start of the new uh, century in 2006, seven, eight, we see these mm -hmm. changes. And, uh, and I Xi Jinping, showing... uh, if I if I can just excuse me, and Xi Jinping shows up in what 2012. So this is like right. four or five when, four or five years before he's running right. the show. Okay. It's in the middle of the Hu Jintao decade. So the first okay. uh, five years of Hu Jintao's governing China was really uh, quite successful. And it certainly was like peak freedom of information in China, um, loosening up control over society and good relations with neighbors and with the United States. Um, it was um, so trade and investment ties uh, with its neighbors and with the United States and many other countries became very strong. So things were going mm -hmm. pretty well. Um, and But then before the Beijing Olympics in 2008, around 2007, six, seven, things start to change. Mm -hmm. And I can mention the three areas in which we see a sure. major shift. Um, in foreign policy, it's in the South China Sea. South China Sea, which had not been the focal point of Chinese nationalism before that. There really hadn't been that much um, attention paid to uh, the situation in the South China Sea and China's claims over practically the entire body of water and these little rocks and islands within the sea. So people in China were much more concerned about relations with Japan, about its uh, eventual reunification of Taiwan, uh, but didn't pay that much attention to South China Sea. So which, which nations um, are would feel threatened by China's assertiveness in the South in the South China Sea? What what countries uh, the in the other, region? The other claimants uh, the, with coasts on the South China Sea, namely the Philippines and Vietnam, especially, but including okay. Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei. Um, and uh, what we saw happening around 2006, 2007 was that Chinese civilian uh, maritime agencies started sending their ships like the fishing patrol boats, as well as fishing boats themselves, fishing trawlers themselves, uh, and started fishing in areas which are part of the exclusive economic zones, 200 nautical miles off the coast of Vietnam or the Philippines. And can I, can I ask like also what- drilling, can, Also drilling. Okay, can I ask you a technical question? Like what is the status of that zone in international law? I mean, I mean what is it that establishes 200 miles as a significant zone? The uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Okay, and China. And now we have not signed that. Has China signed that? The, the law of the sea. Yes, but they. Okay. Yes, they have. Um, okay. And the U.S. observes it, but we never formally ratified it. Right. Okay. So, uh, and of course, we should ratify it. It's pretty foolish that we haven't. Um, yeah. 
but uh, and uh, so China was basically encroaching mm-hmm. on the territories that, under international law, are controlled by these other coastal states, and it also was provoking them into fights. You know, it would shove them, spray water cannon. Uh, provoke fights, and including with the United States. The U.S. had naval surveillance vessels because we treat, uh, other than the uh, exclusive economic zones that international law gives to the coastal states, other than that, we treat that body of water as international waters. So we sail our... Okay military ships, as well as our maritime vessels through it, uh, commercial vessels through it. And uh, the Chinese were coming and grabbing our radars and, you know, provoking confrontations with us as well as the other claimants. So that was really a new provocative form of behavior. And What's important about that is not just that this body of water is in and of itself important because a lot of trade, including energy trade, oil and gas, goes through it to Mm -hmm. Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, and China, but also because it just changed the whole narrative about what kind of rising power China was. Mm -hmm. Because up until that time, China was not picking fights with its neighbors or the United States. Okay. Now, um, does that constitute the first of the three areas of overreach? Or or does, uh, I I mean, that alone, or does maritime assertiveness generally constitute the first of the three to include things around Japan, the the controversies around Japan? No, I'd say say South China Sea is really the first area where we saw um, provocative action. And then internally in China, there were two other areas. One is social control Mm -hmm. and media control. Things Mm -hmm. tightened up before the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Before that time, Mm -hmm. China had developed quite a vibrant commercial media and um, uh, social media, Weibo online. And there was a lot of investigative journalism. A lot of people were um, posting photographs and things of corrupt local officials, complaining about things that local officials did. And that was actually quite useful to the central government to help them monitor what the local officials were doing. And also society, there was the development of non-governmental organizations, environmental groups, um, all sorts of groups developing. Mm -hmm. So it really looked like China was moving in a more uh, liberal direction, not necessarily electoral democracy, but just a lot more freedom. Mm-hmm. And then around 2008 or so, before the Olympics, you get the internal security bureaucracies really starting to crack down in mm-hmm. censorship as well as in uh suppressing the NGOs and this grid management system of surveilling people's activities. Mm-hmm. So at the time I thought and others thought, well, this is just before the Olympics in China, often before big events, you have this tightening up, then the they get through the event and then things go back to normal again. But in mm-hmm. this things never went back to normal and they've just gotten more and more tight in their social control. And do you think that initially the idea was that it was a a measure for the Olympics and they just kind of came to like it, so to speak, like, hey, this isn't so hard and it gives us more control? Or do you think from the beginning, even before the Olympics, it was a part 
of an impetus that had some origin other than the Olympics? Well, that's hard to say, but uh, I do find that these bureaucracies, uh, the internal police, the internet censors, these bureaucratic interest groups uh, got stronger and stronger. And that's because mm -hmm. under Hu Jintao, China was being governed by a collective leadership of nine members of the standing committee of the Chinese Communist Party, Politburo of the mm -hmm. Chinese Communist Party. And was that, can I, that, was that a post-Mao reform Yes. Under Deng Xiaoping, so that they yes. would never again have quite such an autocratic leadership. Right. That's okay. exactly right. But the way collective leadership worked under Hu Jintao, um, all of these bureaucracies started going their own way. And in the social control side, you had what I call the control coalition with uh, a czar. Uh, a senior politician, Cho Yung Khan, who sat in the standing committee of the Politburo. Mm -hmm. And he was a very powerful politician. And he uh, really ramped up this control over Chinese society and information in the media. So the control okay. coalition hijacked Chinese domestic policy. And Hu Jintao mm -hmm. just didn't have um, the muscle, the heft, to control it. Mm -hmm. So this collective leadership uh, was going its own way, and that was the origin of overreach in mm -hmm. the Hu Jintao era. But of course, now afterwards, as we move to Xi Jinping, with a more autocratic leadership, the overreach becomes even more extreme. Mm -hmm. The uh, now I think you've described, you know, that uh, the process by which the collective leadership, leadership by consensus, kind of devolved into something uh, worse. Uh, has to do. I gather part of the dynamic was the idea had been, you know, all of the the I guess the people in the Politburo or whatever, like th th they. Um, they, whatever you call it, uh, the Chinese, what, what, what is it, the Chinese Communist? It's the Standing Committee of standing the Politburo. Okay. The Politburo, and, Politburo has about 20 people. The Standing Committee had okay. nine. And the idea is the standing, all of these people evaluate each policy uh, to see if they believe it's in the interests of China. Ideally, this is the way it works. And if enough of them agree, then they do the policy. But over time, this this became kind of favor swapping, right? We're like, uh, or log rolling, as you put it, where where one person really wanted to tighten up on control and somebody else would say, well, okay, but this is what I want in exchange in my own realm of interest, right? And, right, and it's just so. interesting that such a subtle change in the internal dynamic of the system could have such consequences. Yes. Um, you know, the I think the expectation or the hope that Deng Xiaoping had when he uh, introduced a more collective leadership as a way of checking mm -hmm. the, what he called the over-concentration of authority that China had suffered under Mao Zedong, leading to all of these arbitrary decisions that mm -hmm. had such tragic consequences like mm -hmm. greatly forward in the Cultural Revolution. What Deng hoped was that in a collective leadership that was more institutionalized with retirement ages, fixed terms of office, that this the oligarchs in the Communist Party, they would check one another mm -hmm. and lead to a more predictable, pragmatic, restrained form of governance. But mm -hmm. then it didn't work that way. And as you say, you get this swapping of favors in a, each uh, bureaucratic interest group says, you know, this is what I want to do and you need to go along with me. If you go along with me, I'll go along with mm -hmm. you. So 
I, I think you've outlined two of the areas of uh, overreach, right? Uh, maritime assertiveness, uh, tightening of control of information. And then what is the third? And the third one is that the state uh, bureaucracies that control the economy came back after decades of decentralization because, mm -hmm. of course, the other really very important thing that Deng Xiaoping did is to replace Soviet-style central planning mm -hmm. that China had under Mao with a market economy, market competition. Mm -hmm. That's mean privatization. In Russia, they did it by privatizing the firms. In China, they did it much more gradually. So you still had not that many private firms, but the state firms were competing with one another. But the bureaucratic, powerful bureaucracies that had previously managed this whole large economy, they stepped back. But what happened in 2006, seven, these uh, bureaucratic agencies step back in to manage the economy once again. The state came back and uh, they did it in the name of building up China's indigenous innovation, its technology. Mm -hmm. um, and But as a result, uh, the market reforms just became stalled out, stymied. And these state bureaucracies came back with a vengeance. So they did it in the name of what we would call industrial policy, where the government yeah. thinks that you need to direct resources toward right. investment in certain technology. Do you think that part of the motivation was sincere and they, they just kind of screwed it up? Or, or maybe they didn't screw it up. I don't know. But but yeah, no, I think I think it was sincere. I mean, because okay. that motivation has remained very strong ever, ever since then. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see it today with a very strong state-led drive for self-reliance in China. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, I would say when you when you call all three of these overreach, it seems like there's kind of two categories. Uh, the first one, the maritime assertiveness, has to do with China's external behavior toward other states. And there are other examples uh, that show up maybe a little later, but kind of wolf warrior diplomacy, whatever. Um, even though that's mainly rhetorical. Uh, but but um, the other two are about China's internal affairs. And there are people, not many, maybe, <laughs> I may be one of the few, who would insist strenuously on distinguishing between the two and say that, look, our business in our conduct of foreign policy is really mainly with their external behavior uh, because their internal behavior, we A, we just don't have much control over. B, when we try to control it, uh, it often backfires and and so on, right? And and I think, you know, in, in, in China's one of many places where the, the two kind of tend to get conflated. Like people will say, you said engagement would work and yet China's not democratic. And it's true that there were some hopes that engagement would make China more democratic, but it doesn't seem to me that whether China is democratic is like our main problem, right? Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, well, I, you know, um, in many ways, I agree with you. I think our primary focus should be the way China behaves internationally mm -hmm. and the extent to which it, um, you know, especially if it behaves aggressively and not peacefully and really puts U.S. interests at mm -hmm. risk. But um, what was interesting to me and the reason that I dealt with them together here is because the inflection point, the change in China's behavior happens at the same time. Mm -hmm. So and I, I thought that was really interesting and it was kind of a puzzle that made me want to dig deeper inside the black box of Chinese politics to mm -hmm. understand why that and is your main explanation the dynamic we already referred to where you get these bureaucratic interest groups swapping favors? Yeah, or is there it more is, to it, it than is. that? Um, but then, of course, this shift in that direction happens also right before the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. 
So the global financial crisis added impetus to this shift, to this change toward overreach, because the global financial crisis created an impression, not just in China, but in the United States and other countries too, that the US was on the decline and that China was really on the rise because it recovered faster from the global financial crisis than the United States did. You know, as you may recall, they injected a huge stimulus and the decisiveness of Chinese Communist Party rule really worked for China in mm -hmm. this circumstance. And so, um, and led to a kind of premature triumphalism in China in which people inside China were calling for a more assertive foreign policy, for mm -hmm. sure. Domestically, I don't think they were call calling for tightening up at all. But internationally, they were calling for greater assertiveness because they said, look, no more Mr. Nice Guy, you know, mm -hmm. China's on the rise and we ought to assert our own interests. Right. And so you, you just alluded to nationalism and, and uh, you know, one thing I think you've done consistently, maybe more than some observers of various nations, is uh, kind of pay attention to domestic uh, influences on policy. You know, there are people who think that like in autocracies or what they call dictatorships, the, the ruler is virtually free from domestic constraint, right? Because it's a dictatorship. You can do whatever you want. And I think you, um, you know, you've emphasized that that's not really the, the case. And in fact, your, your, uh, an earlier book of yours was called Fragile Superpower. And part of the fragility is that these uh, the leaders of China uh, often feel quite insecure and and for that reason would be responsive to for example nationalist sentiment at the grassroots level now of course they may in turn cultivate that and we can get to that that that's something that a lot of leaders around the world do but um can you talk a little about what the source of the insecurity is in China's leaders cuz i think that may it may surprise people that there is that much of it uh, yes, I think that insecurity is uh, very significant because in countries like China, where the Communist Party leads, the most powerful leader in China is the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. Now, in recent years, he's also been the president, but the president president doesn't really have much powers. It's really mm -hmm. the general secretary who has the powers. The party is in charge of appointing all of the officials, mm -hmm. so all the cabinet officers, all the heads of ministries, all the mayors, party secretaries. So, um, but there's uh, no, uh, no real legitimacy to the power holders or, or to the Communist Party itself. You know, they uh, nobody elected them. They're self-selected. Uh, there used to be no fixed terms of office. Uh, there used to be no regular turnover of power at the top. So they're not accountable, really, to anybody other than the Central Committee and the Communist Party. But ironically, so, that makes them concerned about what the people think of them, right? That's right. Well, they're concerned about what the other politicians think because they could be threatened okay. by a coup at any time. There could be a public split. But also, uh, they are worried about social protest and the potential for a bottom-up upheaval. Mm -hmm. now, now, Xi Jinping has consolidated power for uh, considerably i mean he's broken the norm of how long a leader can can rule and he's uh surrounded himself with loyalists and so on D does that mean that he should behave uh as a less insecure leader or you would expect that or are you seeing that or is he 
as nervous as the the, la- the last guy. Well, he's probably even more nervous mm-hmm. than Hu Jintao because under Xi Jinping has torn up a lot of the norms and rules that Deng Xiaoping tried to put in place. Mm-hmm. That means it's kind of a free-for-all. He, there's no anointed successor. He uh, changed the constitution. He's now in his third term. And nobody knows how long he intends to stay there. I have and, a theory. <laughs> I mean, okay, what's they, they all want to stay there forever, right? Isn't, oh, isn't that the, the eternal rule leader, of politics? <laughs> any, any leader wants to stay yeah. there forever, but they are constrained by law. Mm-hmm. In China, that's not the case. So in addition, under Xi Jinping, Xi came into power in 2012. But, and then in 2013, he launched this massive anti-corruption campaign um, because under collective leadership of Hu Jintao, the system had become very, very corrupt, including mm-hmm. the top-level uh, politicians. They call them, it was an anti-corruption campaign against tigers as well as flies. So, uh, but the anti-corruption campaign was not just about corruption. It was also about loyalty. Mm -hmm. He was trying to eliminate potential rivals to his power. And um, as a result of this anti-corruption campaign, which was really a purge, and it continues to this very day, we, as we've seen in the last few weeks, with the purge of the foreign minister, the defense minister, the senior military uh, generals in the missile and nuclear forces. So um, this is what Zbigniew Brzezinski, in writing about the Soviet Union, called the permanent purge. China is now in the middle of a permanent purge. This puts intense pressure on all subordinate officials, and it leads them, as they compete for their own careers, to try to jump on the bandwagon behind Xi Jinping's policies faster, to be out in front, Mm -hmm. and then to carry them out in an extreme way and of course, never to dare provide information up the ladder to tell Xi Jinping what are the costs of the policies he's pursuing. So this system, the overreach dynamic in Xi's system is is very extreme. And it means that Xi is very insecure because He doesn't believe when people tell him how loyal they are to him and what a great leader he is, he knows not to trust them because he knows that they're saying these things under the intense top-down pressure. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd say on the other hand, isn't it the case that if you look at the most powerful people, uh, the people who, you know, the Politburo and the Standing Committee, Aren't a lot of those, hasn't he seen to it that a lot of those are people he's known a long time and has that that kind of trust in that you can only get from working with people a long time? Yes. In fact, for years, he said that he really only trusts people he's worked with before he became chosen to be the leader of China. Mm -hmm. But many of these people are now in jail. So, yes, he trusted them until he didn't. You know, at one time, they were uh, loyalists that he trusted. Mm -hmm. But he came to mistrust them. And, you know, Mao said this to Ho Chi Minh back in 1965. He says, basically, the louder they praise you, the less you can believe them. so is the is it sounds like uh he may be a little on the paranoid side. I mean, I mean, 
right? It's not, it's not like if, because he's gone. I, I mean, you, you know, as, as you pointed out uh, elsewhere, like the people who, some of the people only yesterday were his enforcers. Like they were, they were interrogating the sus the people who were suspected of disloyalty. He suddenly decided they're disloyal. They're in jail. I mean, the, some of these are kind of the hallmarks of somebody who's, uh, you know, self-preservation antenna are a little too fine-tuned, like, for their own good, right? Well, I mean, that's the title of one of my chapters is the state of paranoia. Right. And um, But the paranoia is not just because Xi Jinping's psychology. Mm -hmm. It's really because of the nature of the system. Pretty much any leader in this system is going to feel paranoid. Mm -hmm. It's an occupational hazard of dictatorship. I mean, there are great political science books written about the dictator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that could lead one to be pessimistic. Um, although, I mean, again, it's like, I, I do think these are, to some extent, two separate realms. There's a way he's running his country, and then there's the external behavior of his country, right? One can imagine uh, a ruthless, domestically ruthless dictator who uh, is not overplaying his hand on the international front, right? Well, yes, but um, I think the, uh, the really it's it's the nature of these political institutions uh -huh. that leads to overreach. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for me as a political scientist, it would have been a lot neater if I could show that collective leadership really did lead to greater restraint and then more concentrated leadership leads to more overreach. And that's for years what I thought was the case until the collective leadership with a relatively weak leader like Hu Jintao mm -hmm. just stopped working that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was really quite puzzling. So, a lot, but I'd say that most people today in China would prefer to go back to collective leadership. You know, when when she came in, the system had become so corrupt that I think uh, the other politicians gave a mandate to Xi to have a stronger leadership. Mm -hmm. But then he exercised that power in, in a, a very arbitrary way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at what happened with zero COVID and the lockdown. And then the sudden end to that. And yeah. also the uh, way he picked fights uh, through economic sanctions as well as through aggressive military actions against South Korea, against Japan, against Taiwan, against uh, picking a fight on the border with India, um, sanctioning Australia when it called for an international investigation of the origins of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and the, some of these sanctions are only now getting lifted with Australia. So um, his behavior has been arbitrary and it's led to this big international backlash against China and domestically, severe economic costs. China's economy is really struggling now mm -hmm. because of some of the policy mistakes that she has inflicted on the Chinese economy, like cracking down on the private sector. Mm -hmm. A quick uh, kind of footnote about Xi Jinping. I mean, something that may contribute to his kind of psychology of insecurity so as a child, he was born to kind of Communist Party royalty, right? And then he right. and then he endured the Cultural Revolution in a way that was, uh, as I understand, it was really weird. Like, uh, you know, he was kind of a victim. His family, 
he was a victim, if I recall correctly, uh, kind of of the Cultural Revolution. Didn't like his own mother denounce him or something or like refuse to come to his defense or something? Or am I is that is that confused or? Um, I'm not sure about that, but definitely his family, his father was uh, purged mm -hmm. during the Cultural Revolution and he was sent to the countryside. So he had a very um, rudimentary education, you know, because he spent most of his youth mm, mm. as uh, uh, working in the fields in the countryside. Mm. Um, mm. And, uh, and then managed to get to university afterwards. But so his family was the victim of Mao's arbitrary rule. Mm -hmm. And so people presumed that he would govern more like Deng or Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin mm -hmm. than like Mao. So they were really surprised when he uh, came into power in 2012 and built up really a cult of personality, somewhat similar to Mao's, uh, put control ahead of the economic development and stressed ideology in the way Mao had done when he mm -hmm. ruled China. So uh, I think we've established that you think that on the domestic front, his amassing of power to some extent reflects like genuine insecurity about his own standing in the system. And, it, it, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a related but different question on the international front. To what extent does, does for example, maritime assertiveness uh, reflect genuine strategic insecurity? In other words, uh, his feeling that these are, you know, that he needs to establish his security perimeter uh, somewhat expansively to fend off uh, America or whoever he fears or whatever? Well, I really don't think that China is threatened internationally by anybody. Right. I know. But the question is, what does he think? Well, you know, or what do senior military people think? I mean, yeah. I think they would certainly prefer a region Mm -hmm. in which the U.S. military wasn't so close to their borders. And they uh, would be able to dominate other countries, even maybe through economic relations, maybe even peacefully. But China would prefer to restore a system in which a kind of hierarchical system in the region in which China was the central power and had mm -hmm. suzerainty over uh, neighboring countries. Remember the, uh, the system of tributary states that China had historically. So I mm -hmm. think that, that would probably be their preference. But as a uh, realistic matter, a prudent Chinese government is not going to try to uh, reestablish that kind of system because there are other major countries surrounding it. I mean, Japan's mm -hmm. a big, powerful country. Uh -huh. So is South Korea. So is India. So is Indonesia. It's going to have to learn to live with its neighbor. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I agree. It would. Uh, this is not a very prudent foreign policy. I guess in a way my question is, uh, but is it uh, any less prudent or, or, or any more assertive than comparably powerful nations have been? I mean, China is a rising superpower. They're, go they're going through some economic troubles lately, but, but the policies we're talking about were formed in an atmosphere of, hey, we're feeling our oats. We've got this big, vibrant economy and so on. And I mean, for example, like... Uh, you know, I was against the Iraq war. I, I, what's that? I mean, some people would say that China has modeled itself on the United States. Exactly. That's my point. I mean, I was about to say, 
In 2003, I was saying like, wait, I don't understand how Saddam Hussein is a threat to our national security. I think this is a bad idea. But the overwhelming consensus was that somehow that I continue not to understand Saddam Hussein was some kind of grave threat to our national security. We have an extremely expansive conception of what constitutes a threat to our national security. I mean, if Chinese ships were as close to California as our ships are in China, we would be reading about it in the newspapers and we'd be reading about our response. So I guess, I mean, and of course, I, I don't need to, you know, recite the things we did as a rising power, orchestrate a revolution in Panama. So we have a canal, you know, Panama is pretty far away. So, uh, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you, you've heard the question before, I'm sure. And it gets back to this whole debate about, you know, was, is China's assertiveness a, a predictable feature of a rising superpower? You know, the, as you know, there's this, there was this Thucydides trap argument that when you have a rising superpower like China asserting itself more and more, and you've got a, a country like the U.S., which, although still more powerful, is declining in relative power, um, you have a problem because we're not going to gracefully cede influence. Uh, China is going to seek more and more of it. So in that view, it's just kind of structural. It's like rising superpowers do this. It, it's not, it may not be prudent, uh, but it happens. Uh, and I gather you reject at least some of that. I do. I do. Uh, to me, that's a very mechanical um, way of looking at international relations and and I think it is challenged by how much China has changed over time mm -hmm. and by a lot of the unpredictable things that happened earlier. You know, so one reason that I spend a lot of time describing the history of how China behaved at an earlier time, back under Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, is that I want people in China as well as outside of China who are looking at the China's behavior today and worried mm -hmm. about seeing it as so threatening uh, to realize it hasn't always been like that. Mm -hmm. And that there's a lot of human agency driven by political competition inside the country. And that, um, therefore, there was a lot of, um, a lot of changes in Chinese policy earlier, and there could be changes in the future. It doesn't mean that future China will look like current day China. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so listen, we've been talking close to an hour. Um, as you know, uh, what we generally do here is we do a kind of a public conversation for about an hour, uh, and then we go into kind of overtime, which is available to paid subscribers to the non-zero newsletter on Substack. Um, and we certainly encourage people to become uh, non-zero members. Uh, there's various kinds of content they get access to, but also it's just if you want to support uh, are having conversations like this. We would encourage it on those grounds as well. Now, uh, before we go there, um, Susan, I wanted to say, first of all, remind people uh, that um, that you've got, well, I mean, do you want to go ahead and list all your books? I mean, you, you've, uh, Fragile Superpower was the one right before this. Is that right? And um, Yeah, so um, I... I've written a number of books. Actually, the one right before this was a book on the media called Changing Media, Changing China. Okay. Before that, there was a book called China, Fragile Superpower. Mm -hmm. Another um, major uh, piece of research I did is called The Political Logic of the Economic Reform in China, uh -huh. which explains how... China was able to introduce a market economy to uh, change its centrally planned economy to market competition, but they didn't change their political system. So mm -hmm. how could you do that, you know, given the vested interests? So I thought that was another puzzle, and I wrote 
this book, The Political Logic. Before that, there's a book called Competitive Comrades about the Mao era and how uh, the competition among students at school or workers and work units for their own careers, what mm -hmm. that does to group relations within the uh, school. So, um, yeah, I've been at it a long time. You know, I first went to China in 1971. I've been studying China since 65, 66. So, um, but the advantage of that, of course, is I've seen such dramatic change mm -hmm. inside China, which also gives me some optimism that things may change in the future. Because right now, the situation inside China and the situation in the relationship between China and the United States is really dire, really very, very negative. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk more about that in overtime. I mean, first, I want to say the most recent book is called Overreach. Uh, the subtitle is How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Uh, I encourage people to take a look at that. Um, and then when we go into overtime, I'll tell people the question I'm going to, the first question I'm going to ask, but I definitely want to explore the 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 whole connection. Well, the connection between um, political tightening and economic tightening, uh, but also between this internal tightening and, and the, the foreign policy more. But, but uh, I also want to uh, press you a little more on like kind of, how different is China from us or the way we were as a rising power or something? And, and the question, the first question I'm going to pose is going to be like, if I were Xi Jinping and somebody said, you're misbehaving, uh, like the if the U.S. said, look, we're getting really worried about the way you're behaving in your external, you know, your behavior toward other nations, I think I might say, listen, you just imposed these what seem to us like pretty draconian restrictions on microchip exports to China and kind of strong-armed Europe into complying with them. And your goal is nothing short of hobbling us in what everyone agrees is the next great frontier of competitiveness, artificial intelligence. This is, we, we think of this as economic and technological strangulation. Name something we're doing to you that is remotely as actually threatening to your national security as this policy seems to us. That's the question I'm going to ask you. Uh, in overtime and thanks again to everybody who's listening this far uh and now we're going into overtime where we're going to hear the answer